it's very clear why Vladimir Putin loves Donald Trump. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Today, I'm in Washington, joined by David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Also joining us in D.C. is FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of the forthcoming book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, which is out August 9th, and I urge you to immediately buy it. If you have to skip food that day, skip food, buy Rosa's book. Finally, I'm pleased to welcome a new guest to the table, FP's own Molly O'Toole, who is covering the 2016 election and foreign policy. She joins us from a hot car in the parking lot outside the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. Another thank you, by the way, to everybody who submitted ideas. We've received some great ones, also some pretty crappy ones, to be honest, but keep them coming. If you have an idea, question, or comment, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com, and we'll give you a mug, even if the idea is not very good. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So... Here are three possibilities. One, Donald Trump is a patsy of the Russian government. Two, Donald Trump is complicit with the Russian government in trying to change U.S. foreign policy through the efforts of those around Donald Trump. Or three, something in the middle where Trump's interests and Putin's interests align and it's produced some remarkable developments in the campaign season. I'm going to summarize a couple of the points that I think lead me to pose this question, and then we'll have a discussion about it. Most recently, and of course this evolves on a daily basis, so other things may happen between now and the broadcast date of this podcast, Donald Trump called for the Russian government to spy on Hillary Clinton to come up with her emails. Also, frankly, more surprising than that to some was the fact that he said he would reevaluate our policy towards Crimea and that he thought perhaps that we should lift sanctions on the Russians. Why is that strange? Well, on one level, it's strange because it's contrary to U.S. policy. And on another level, it's strange because it's contrary to U.S. interests. But on a third level, it's strange because it echoes the one area in foreign policy where Trump intervened in the Republican foreign policy platform, which was to change our policy towards Ukraine. Why is that strange? Well, as it happens, Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, for years worked for Ukraine's strongman, Viktor Yanukovych, who happens to be buds with Vladimir Putin. Other buds of Vladimir Putin, oligarchs, have funneled tons of money into Trump's uh, real estate developments in New York when other people wouldn't fund money into them. And in fact, the buzz within New York real estate circles was that people didn't want to do business with Trump because some of the money coming into his deals was funny money coming out of these Russian oligarchs. Trump has said that he admires Putin. Putin has said that he admires Trump. And of course, 
Putin launched this hack on the DNC, which he released prior to the Democratic Convention in order to have some effect on the race, uh, an effect that would clearly be beneficial to Trump. So we're not speculating. We're not talking about uh, possibilities of of events having effect on policies. Uh, there are There's a lot going on here, and I'd like to unpack it a little bit. David, you've been one of the leading reporters on all of this. Where are you coming out at the moment? Uh, I'm in your option number three, somewhere in the middle. There is a confluence of interests here uh, between Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump. I don't think they're talking to each other. I don't think they're emailing each other. Mr. Trump says he's never met Mr. Putin, and we have no evidence that he ever has. But think about this. In Mr. Trump, you have somebody who has said uh, repeatedly, including in two interviews with us at the New York Times, that he is interested in pulling back from American intervention in the world, that he would only support NATO if everybody pays their share. In fact, he told me last week in an interview I did with uh, Maggie Haberman, my colleague, that he would not come to the aid of Eastern European countries that were invaded by Russia unless he checked first to see if uh, they had paid up their dues to NATO, which is a little like calling the fire department and asking them to come by to put down the, out the fire before your house burns down. And they say, Mr. Rothkopf, Give us a moment here. We're going back to look at your real estate taxes to see whether or not you're up to date. Well, interestingly, that was the shakedown used by the famous Crassus in Rome where they would set buildings on fire and then he would uh, seek to sell fire insurance. And only after the fire insurance was sold would they put out the fire. But let me just take a brief pause. I'm going to come back to you in a second. Sitting next to you is Rosa Brooks, international law scholar, and people who've listened to past episodes of this have listened to her school me on international law. Um, And so I would like to ask you, Rosa, your understanding of the NATO agreement, does it have a kind of opt-out provision for the U.S. president to do whatever the fuck he wants? It sort of does, to be honest. I mean, uh, it's been a while since I looked at the text of the, the NATO agreement, but what it does commit states to do is, is, is essentially take action, take appropriate action when a fellow NATO member is threatened. It doesn't specify exactly what that action is, uh, which so, leaves states so an enormous credit, amount of wiggle room. Checking their credit references a- absolutely, is, could be one of the absolutely. Absolutely. And remember uh, back when Turkey invited, invaded Cyprus, for instance, and there was a real dilemma. You know, here you had uh, two NATO members going, going at it, essentially, Greece and Turkey, and the other NATO states did not know what to do. And so essentially, they didn't do very much. They made some noise. They, they wrung their hands a little bit. Um, but we certainly have precedence for states not doing a heck of a lot when there is a pretty clear breach of the NATO agreement one way or another. Okay, so let's go back to David Sanger. David Sanger, by the way, who is regularly name-checked by Trump. Trump goes, oh, I love this guy Sanger. He's such a sweetie pie, and I'm going to give him all these interviews. You're kind of like his scribe, his alter ego. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Well, compared to the things, David, that over the years you've said about me, I'd probably take whatever it is. It's like Johnson's Boswell. It's a little like that. Very similar. Trump's Boswell, David Sanger. So so if you go back to the— what he said about NATO, if you're Vladimir Putin and you're reading these uh, interviews by his Boswell, um, what you would conclude is this is my guy, okay? Because he's going to go weaken NATO in some way 
while Putin goes out of his way to run air and sea exercises to uh, at least intimidate them. The hard part when it comes to the hack, though, is that if you look at the timeline of the hack, it began on the DNC in June of 2015. Now, at that moment, no one, not even Vladimir Putin, knew that Donald Trump was going to be the Republican nominee. That's what you think. Well, <laughs> I mean, right. while, we're, while right. we're getting into conspiracy theories, right. I don't see any reason to stop now. Rothkoff knew, but that yeah. was a different – that was a, for a different reason. But I don't even think Donald Trump knew at that point. That yeah, that I think you have a good point. So when this started, Molly, I don't think that it was aimed at promoting the Trump presidency. If anything, it might have been to come up with embarrassing material about, about Hillary Clinton and one of the favorite theories of those around uh, Secretary Clinton is that because she showed up in Russia in 2011 when uh, Putin was running a pretty fraudulent parliamentary election and called that out and protesters showed up on the streets, that Putin has a reason to dislike Hillary Clinton. Now, that's a pretty self-serving description of history on the part of the Democrats. But there may be an element of truth to it and he may have simply been or somebody trying to please him may have simply been trying to gather material. Then they have all this material right when the conventions are beginning and the release, the timing of the release was pretty remarkable uh, last week. It was Friday night. The Republican convention was over. The Democratic convention was about to begin and that led ultimately, of course, to the resignation of the party chairman, Debbie Washington Schultz. So the question is, who else might have been advising them along the way that the timing here would have been that good? I, I, don't, I mean, I believe the FSB and, and uh, GRU are good at this stuff, but I'm not sure they would know how to cause chaos within the Democratic Party. Interesting. So, Molly, you – by the way, Molly, I, I, you're in a car in the parking lot there and it's very hot. I just want to know, have you opened the window a crack so you're not going to suffocate? I, I have attempted to use the air conditioning, but this is this is a quite an illustrious uh, studio I have going here, so, so don't worry. Is this the only car that foreign policy will pay for, one with no air conditioning? That's a, it's, actually <laughs> it's actually the hotel no room. It's the hotel room <laughs> we've paid for. Anyway, Molly, think of it this way. The alternative is you could be in the studio here yeah, with us. Yeah, you could be with us. Exactly. It, it probably puts you in just the right spirit here. Yeah. It's sort of like a facsimile of hell. Yeah. Right, right exactly. So there you are. Uh, but you posted a story. Again, this podcast will come up in a few days after you posted this story. But you just posted a story in which you spoke to Madeleine Albright. And – you know, you're going around there at the Democratic side of this thing, hearing about reactions. Talk a little bit about Albright's reaction and then talk about how that jibes or doesn't with other reactions you've heard there. So I spoke to Albright on Monday uh, and when the allegations were still very much swirling, uh, the FBI, I believe, had just announced that it was going to be uh, launching an investigation into this. Uh, but what I spoke to her about was what, what David alluded to which is not only that there had been some evidence that when this hack began in June, uh, that it was tied to the Russians, a lot of independent analysts, not just the DNC, that were saying, hey, this looks like it's the Russians. You had to sort of question the timing, uh, the brilliant, from a political standpoint, the brilliant uh, political timing of the leak and how that might be related to um, either the candidate himself or Trump's aides, their very friendly approach toward Russia. And it seemed too coincidental. So asking her about that 
given sort of her career of work on Russia. And she said, look, espionage isn't new. Attempts to interfere in elections isn't new. She talked about how when she was secretary of state, they found uh, a man who was trying to bug her office. I mean, that sort of thing isn't new. But the, the two things that are sort of unprecedented about this, which is what she commented on, is how it's expanded into the realm of cyber uh, in a way that no one is really prepared for. Uh, and then, of course, with the, the really direct, the seemingly direct attempt uh, to impact uh, the U.S. presidential election. And those those were the two things she really the two things she really focused on. Now, Jake Sullivan responded to the most recent uh, Trump statement or the Trump statements with regard to, uh, well, maybe the Russians should go and spy. Uh, and Jake is the uh, top policy advisor to Hillary Clinton and and uh, a former deputy national security advisor, former head of policy planning at the State Department. And he said, you know, look, we're not making this up. This is a national security issue. Is that something that's gaining traction and seems to have a lot of bite there on the ground at the convention? And uh, do you think that's going to emerge as a central issue in the campaign as a consequence? I do think it's going to emerge as a central issue, uh, if only uh, insofar as the Democrats are going to be working very hard to keep it there. I mean, the, the, the sort of narrative initially um, when the, the leak first came out, Trump's people are here. Uh, the RNC is here. They're sort of having this counter convention, which is the opportunity they get by going uh, by going second. Uh, and their line, at least right away, is, you know, these these allegations that somehow this was done on behalf of the Trump campaign because we're friendly to Russia. This is ridiculous. Uh, and they pushed back against all of these. Uh, Manafort was asked directly whether it could potentially have anything to do with business ties or his own work uh, with people who are closely aligned uh, to Putin. And he said, no, it's ridiculous. Um, and they actually had said that if it's proven uh, that that Russia uh, backed or directly sort of orchestrated um, the hack that they would come out against it because uh, that obviously Russia shouldn't be uh, hacking American presidential candidates. So their complete their narrative was trying to focus on the content of the emails, not who may have leaked the emails, and then also trying to tie it to Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server saying, if this is what happened to the DNC, can you only imagine? what access they may have uh, to Secretary Clinton's emails. But their argument that it had nothing to do with Russia and their friendliness towards Russia has been completely undermined by Donald Trump's comments, in which he sort of made the argument for the Democrats saying, you know, I hope that I hope that Russia does go after uh, those emails. And then at least early on, we saw a lot of division in the Democratic Party. They were trying to have a show of unity on the first day. And that really unraveled when we saw the protests and Bernie Sanders himself being heckled by his own supporters. So the hack and the emails, what they contained, really did sort of inflame those tensions. And so really it seemed that Democratic supporters, at least on the Bernie side, the ones that really need to be won over here in Philadelphia, that they didn't care about the Russian allegations. They were only focused on the content of the emails. Now, after Sanders spoke, after we saw Michelle Obama with her entreaty for unity, um, well, I think we've seen some of that enthusiasm from the most diehard Bernie Sanders supporters start to die off. And so I think we're going to see this narrative, especially now that these allegations have been confirmed and Trump's own comments 
think we're going to see the de- the Democrat supported narrative about this being a national security concern. I think that's really going to take over. Okay, so that's a good summary of of where this stands politically. Rosa, am, am I wrong? Weren't you? Didn't you say like Trump foreign policy was good for yes, America? Yes, yes, yes. David, you're all both of you, David's. You're all showing much too little imagination. Think about it like this. Um, our lives, our lives, we're old enough for our lives, we're shadowed, overshadowed by the by the tensions and the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. You know, we grew up living in fear of nuclear war. And even with the collapse of the former Soviet Union, you know, we continue to see Russia as an enormous geopolitical threat. Uh, Donald Trump promises peace in our time, right? I mean, this is just amazing. Never before have we had a serious U.S. presidential contender who's saying, you know, I heart Vladimir Putin, I heart Russia, we can work together, we can all be friends. So I think if you want world peace, uh, if you want superpower peace for real, you got to vote for Trump. We're going to be we're going to we're going to make peace with Russia. Trump and Putin will lead the world together. They will they will sponsor beauty pageants with Russian and American beauties. They will ride wild horses together. It is going to be a thing of shirtless. Shirtless. I think oh, this please, is please, 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 Molly. This is your first time on here, and the notion of Donald Trump shirtless on a horse—maybe just Putin shirtless. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a little bit nauseating. No, I think this is. I think this is the kind of. I think this is a kind of brilliant political analysis that made foreign policy what it is. I think that's right. Well, and let me add one more. One more piece of brilliant political analysis, um, which is that, in all seriousness, I don't think this hurts Trump. It should. It should. You know, I mean, it is on one level from our perspective. It is shocking to have a U.S. presidential candidate who appears to be quite cheerful about the idea of uh, a longtime U.S. adversary, you know, hacking the email of a serious presidential candidate, former secretary of state, so forth. We think, gosh, that should appall everybody. But, but you know, the, the Trump's appeal and, and there was an interesting piece in The Washington Post about this uh, back in late in, in December or so by Stephen Miller, um, there's a ton of political science research that suggests that when people are scared, whether they're scared of national security threats or scared of economic calamity, that they're attracted to sort of political strongmen uh, of the Putin variety, of, of the, well, at least Mussolini made the trains run on time variety. And that is, you know, that is already clearly Trump's appeal is that he beats his chest and he says, don't worry about those stupid little details that those liberal elites seem so obsessed with. Trust me, I know how to get stuff done. I can take care of things. And Putin is a similar leader and he has a similar appeal to the Russian population. And I think Trump in some ways defangs Putin to his own his own base by basically saying, of course, Putin is a strong man, but that's OK. I can work with a guy like that. Don't worry. I've got this. And I think and I think his supporters, I think his supporters are open to that message. Well, let's David, let's let's unpack it a little bit further. Most of the talk has been about the hack and, you know, was it a hack? And and ultimately, it seems like it was. Was it Russian? And ultimately, it seems like it was. And then Trump's embrace of the of, of the hack and saying, please come and look for more of her emails. And and I've seen, you know, social media chatter and so forth about this. And, and it tends to bear out what Rose is saying. It says, that the Democrats are inflamed. The people who would be against Trump don't like him, and this makes them like him less. But the people who are pro-Trump are like, hey, what about Hillary's email problem? And she's the one that the FBI called, you know, careless with with emails, and, 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 and that's a bigger threat. Well, let's set all that aside a second. I was particularly struck by this apparent volt fass on Crimea um, by the sanctions issue, 
by the platform on Ukraine, by the sort of bald-faced switch on these things that's taken place in a campaign that's run by a guy who used to work for the Ukrainian sidekick of Vladimir Putin. Is, I mean, isn't that a serious problem to anybody who's like cares about foreign policy or U.S. national interests? Well, it would certainly be a problem to the Republicans in the U.S. Senate who, until Donald Trump got the nomination, was arguing that the problem with the Obama administration was that they were too soft on the Russians dealing with Ukraine, that the American and European sanctions needed to be toughened, that we needed to be providing lethal assistance to the Ukrainians to be able to hold off the Russian threat, uh, that they were fearing that the Europeans might back away from the sanctions, not that we would, but the Europeans would, and therefore fracture whatever uh, agreement and consensus we have here to limit the Russians in the future. Now all of a sudden they have a candidate who has moved way to the left on this issue, way to the left of where they are. Now we haven't found the evidence yet, and I've been looking for it, that the platform was actually changed. When you go back and you look at the earlier drafts of the platform, you don't see the Ukraine stuff in it. Now that may simply be that they got to it early and they weren't going to make sure it was in. But it is notably missing given what everything that we know about the way the Republican Party has viewed this issue. And it wouldn't be hard to imagine Donald Trump on the other side of this saying that President Obama has failed to provide sufficient support to the Ukrainians, that it was another example of weak-kneed American leadership and all that. It's one of the only issues in which he's basically said, hey, we can be all be friends and basically embrace what I uh, now call the Rosa Doctrine, <laughs> which is to basically have the United States and Russia run the world together. Well, this does seem to be what Kerry's trying to do in Syria, right? Mm -hmm. Now, now mm -hmm. give Kerry and Lavrov... And getting all kissy face about let's work together in Syria. This is except that it hasn't worked, and you know, we, Mr. Kerry thought that he was going to have an agreement with the Russians about a month and a half ago, and uh, so far he still doesn't have it. He may have it in in a few weeks. But one of the one of the impediments to getting that agreement is that the U.S. has these sanctions in place on Crimea, right? And precisely, uh, right? So they, you know. Donald Trump could solve that problem overnight and, and, the and has said he would consider doing and it. And the difference between John Kerry and Donald Trump is that John Kerry actually cares, I believe, what happens within Syria. I don't think Donald Trump cares at all and I don't think Donald Trump's uh, supporters care at all. And, and, you know, the price we will pay for the, the happy vision of world peace that I've just outlined for you, of course, uh, would be authoritarianism in, in both countries. I mean, the, the way uh, Putin has worked in Russia, obviously, and the way that Trump shows every indication that he would like to operate in the United States is is one where there is uh, total control of the media, complete disregard for truth, a happy willingness to use the most blatant forms of propaganda, a happy willingness to bypass parliament, Congress, other elected representatives, the judiciary, and you name it. Uh, so there would be a price to pay for world peace. But again, I, I am not sure Trump supporters really care. I think from their perspective at the moment, the scary things in the world, those types of diffuse future threats to civil liberties and democratic and rule of law institutions 
are not really what's on their mind right now, that they're much more focused on on the immediate perception of economic threat, added to which is the threat of terrorism. And, and Trump is reassuring them on those fronts. And I, I don't think that his his uh, bromance with Vladimir Putin uh, in any way detracts from that with his with his own supporters. OK, if well, I, l- l- Molly, if I could ask a, a, a question sure. following up on this. David brings up a point, which is that on this issue, Not like on point, many, many, many other issues, the uh, Trump policy is contrary to the policy of the Republican leadership and the Republican foreign policy elite. Now, you've been covering this campaign for a while for foreign policy. Have you found a single Republican foreign policy expert of with any sort of past level of credibility who supports Trump? Well, I guess that what depends on your perspective uh, and, and what you consider credibility. I mean, we do have he has, you know, trotted out Mike Flynn, for example. A lot of observers have said that uh, who's the former top spy at the Pentagon under the Obama administration. Who got, um, who got canned you, from his job. Which is true. But a lot of, you know, a lot of people uh, have said that since uh, he seems to have really taken some extreme positions that shock even them. But this is a relatively high-level Republican, uh, ostensibly national security expert who is supportive of Trump. But like you said, there are uh, there's a really interesting sort of at least rhetorical alliance going on here uh, between the Democrats and between the sort of Republican uh, national security elite. And that's what makes the platform change so fascinating that you highlighted. And with respect to what you said David Sanger, um, the, we actually have some of the earlier drafts from the platform that, for example, there was a um, an amendment that was called for by one of Ted Cruz's supporters, which is not surprising, uh, that called for maintaining or increasing sanctions on Russia, increasing aid for Ukraine, and, quote, providing lethal defensive weapons to the Ukrainian military. And then what happened were Trump staffers wrote an amendment uh, to that amendment that stripped out the platform's call for providing lethal defensive weapons and replaced it with the softer language, which is eventually what was adopted, which is appropriate assistance. And the reason I get into the weeds on on the platform is it is significant. Obviously, it's just a policy blueprint. But I think, if anything, it, it goes to show that Donald Trump's supporters, they don't really care about this. They don't care about that change in the policy platform. They don't particularly care that Donald Trump is out of sync with where the traditional Republican Party idea is. I just uh, interviewed Alex Conant, who was the senior foreign policy advisor for Marco Rubio during the presidential campaign and is again during his Senate election. I said, you know, what about these platform changes? What about Donald Trump's seeming friendliness towards Russia? And he said, that's not where the Republican Party is. And then the question follows, if that's not where the Republican Party is, how did Donald Trump win? And I think that gets to to, to Rosa's point, And I think that's going to be the Democrats' challenge as well. They're trying to make this commander in chief argument for Secretary Clinton that Donald Trump is dangerous. But in terms of winning over voters, they may not care. Well, I think what right. I think the voters may not care, and I think that what has happened here is something kind of interesting, David. And I think that is that Donald Trump is running as a third-party candidate on foreign policy. In other words, there's where the Democrats are. There's where the Republican foreign policy establishment is. They don't currently have a party to go with them anymore. And then there's where Donald Trump is, which is someplace completely different. You know, David, this is one of those areas where I suspect that Donald Trump would say. I'm in a complete agreement with David Rothkopf. Oh, They're probably a long line of those. Oh, um, my God. Because if you think about it, first of all, the, the whole America first terminology that he's adopted. Uh, from the, the 
right-wing anti-Semitic movement in the early oh, 30s. Don't, so, don't be so Except picky, David. It's, it's interesting because he t- said to me in this most recent interview that he had no historical uh, connections with that. In fact, the whole topic came up initially when I asked him in March if he would uh, – uh, if he would characterize his statement as America, his whole views as America first, and he, um, I was expecting him to say, no, no, this isn't like Lindbergh, right? And instead, he said, yeah, that's that's sort of a good description. I, I, I of had where completely I am. forgotten that this is your fault, David. That this is your no, subject. David. David <laughs> has <laughs> contributed <laughs> America first, and if you want to know where. Donald Trump's isolationist, anti-Semitic views come from. It's Sanger. <laughs> Not merely his Boswell, but his muse. Yeah, it's it. Uh, don't wow. tell my rabbi. So, I am Donald um, Trump's mind by so, David Sanger. <laughs> so, uh, so in that, he is completely separate from the rest of the Republican Party, which has been uh, internationalist. I mean, this is like the opposite of where Brent Scowcroft and George H.W. Bush and even Ronald Reagan – were. So and all of whom, by the way, have disavowed. The ones who are alive right, have right. disavowed. Reagan, Reagan hasn't said much. And let me revert to my Panglossian view of the world and say that this is actually not necessarily in the long run such a bad thing for American politics. I mean, the, the sort of stranglehold of the two-party system with very predictable platforms on all issues that changed very little over time. You know, in some sense, the combination of, of Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side and Trump on the Republican side is is challenging and breaking up decades of, uh, you know, sort of consensus within each party on here's what you can say, here's what you can't say. That has that has been really detrimental to any kind of sane political discourse in the United States. So even the insanity of many Trump's of Trump's positions, I think in the long run, I do hope he doesn't win, but in the long run, you know, it's going to be good for American politics to shake up what people assume is, well, of course, Democrats have to be for X, Y, and Z. Of course, Republicans have to be for A, B, and C. By 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 just sort of taking the whole thing and just sticking it in a bag and shaking it and taking out some stuff, you know, it's going to open up more space for other saner people in the future to question some of the sort of orthodoxies oh, of he, both parties. He has open space because he has made clear, and he understood this in a way I don't think any of the rest of us did, that where the Republican Party elite was and where the Republican Party was were two completely separate things. And he drove a wedge down that and opened it up with almost no effort at all. And that's pretty remarkable. I actually think if I could just jump in here for a second uh, regarding what Rosa was saying that that uh, Donald Trump has really just shaken well, – and you as well, David – has really just shaken up everything, let's burn it all down and sort of start from scratch. Actually, one of the more interesting parts of the platform, I think personally, is not even necessarily the language on Ukraine, but it's Israel-Palestine. If we want to talk about sort of the golden calves from a bipartisan perspective on U.S. foreign policy, it was Trump's aides that directly intervened, uh, worked with some other people, but but directly had a hand in removing the two-state solution. Uh, And there's decades of, of... of U.S. bipartisan foreign policy right there toward Israel-Palestinian conflict. And, and that, to me, that's a, a really telling example of how he's uh, how he's shaken everything up. It's actually interesting. It's a very interesting issue. And we possibly could devote an entire episode of this podcast to this because Trump has shifted to the right much more in alignment with Bibi and company in, uh, in Israel. Meanwhile, the Democrats have been pulled apart by the kind of BDS impulses within the Bernie crowd. 
and and that there is some questioning within the Democratic Party about of of the traditional position on 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 Israel and the Palestinians. I don't think it's an accident that the Republicans went this way and the Democrats went another way. I mean, there were people who were suggesting within the Republican Party who may not have been that big of fans of Donald Trump, but they were very supportive of this move in particular because they thought this could potentially be an opportunity, maybe, uh, for the Republicans to pull some of that support from uh, from the Jewish community because of the direction that the, the Democrats moving the opposite direction, essentially. OK, well, so we're running out of time here. I think that's a very good point. It raises a question which I'll pose to to everybody here. But it seems like one of the punchlines of this whole a uh, series of things we're talking about here, Trump on Ukraine, Trump on Crimea, Trump on the hack, Trump versus the Republican foreign policy establishment, uh, Bernie versus the Democratic foreign policy establishment could be seen as foreign policy elites um, are not seen as, 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 as being uh, in touch or as unassailable as they have been in the past, you know, famous book referring to them as the you know establishment and that this the history of foreign policy has been that it has been conducted by sort of these empowered elites in the United States and and uh and 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 they were seen as these kind of mandarins who you just didn't challenge and all of a sudden it seems like not only are they being challenged but that certain politicians are gaining headway by challenging them and that, in fact, one of the the, the and 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 to compound it all, you've got this doubling down on the old saw that foreign policy doesn't really matter in these political races because Donald Trump is saying stuff that is. I mean, I got emails today from former deputy level in the U.S. government senior officials saying was what Trump said treasonous. You know, that it was it's so outrageously coloring outside the lines that they just thought it was. And these are very sort of sound people. One in particular served in both Republican and Democratic administration. This is like saying not only does foreign policy not matter, being rational on foreign policy doesn't even seem to matter. So, you know, if I were a foreign policy elite, which, of course, I'm not, um, <laughs> I I would I would look at this and go, hmm. Job security? What's going on here, David? Well, um, let's start with your observation that um, he is appealing to people who would never be invited on to an FP podcast. And he might be appealing we to people— We are a very exclusive club. We are an exclusive club. <laughs> um, and, and he might actually be appealing to people— Although he may be appealing to some people who are living in their car like Molly. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Um, who America left behind. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, he, he may be actually not even trying to appeal to people who would listen to a foreign policy podcast, although oh there's many— He's doomed. That's right. He's doomed. He's doomed. Foreign policy voters, <laughs> they're, foreign they're, policy listeners. That's right. 
put an end to this Trump nonsense right now. And all, all 50, Take to the streets. Yeah. All 50 Trump. of those votes he's lost. Okay. <laughs> so all of a sudden to now. The barricades. I could just see it. You know, 11 doors opening, 11 people with pitchforks heading out into the street to make a difference. Actually, it was going to be pitchforks, but instead it's those little FP mugs you send FP out. mugs. <laughs> boxes of box That's wine. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the fact that there's always been an appeal in America politics to running against elites, and you have seen that happen periodically. Now, the question I think that that takes you to next is, does he have a cohesive worldview that is an alternative policy? Um, in March, I would have said to you, no. After our most recent interview, I would say that he is beginning to sort of get a greater command of his language about foreign policy, and he is beginning to develop a consistent view that is that is an isolationist one, okay, that is a – everybody pull, engages with the United States as a one-off transaction that you either pay up or you, we don't get your help. In other words, it's not one that's built around a traditional view of American alliances. Do I think any of this will work? No. Could it alienate the rest of, of uh, Europe and our Asian allies? It probably could. But there is the possibility that coming at this as a developer, he is basically putting out a negotiating position. Absolutely. He's, he said in his, uh, yeah. his – in a rally that he had a few days ago, you know, they will pay up. They will come around. They so value the relationship with uh, the United States that they will pay. God. I love the guy who ran the transcript that had Trump's response to your simple question about cyber going, well, I'm, 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 um, I'm a um, fan of the future. <laughs> That's the coherent policy. It's and better than being a fan of the past, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> our elites, Which he also has been at yeah. various moments. Yeah, right. Molly, our elites doomed. Under a Donald Trump administration, I mean, I think we can. I think we can carry that one through. I mean, what he does—that's effective. It is fascinating that in American politics there is this trope of running against elites when we have a political system that's create that works in such a way that you can only be elite in order to run for president. So it is this sort of fascinating trope by which you have to pretend that you're not wealthy, or you pretend that you're not connected, and you're one of the people uh, in order to run for president. It's sort of this constant uh, hypocrisy that, that's sort of fascinating. But what Donald Trump has done, like it or not, that's very, very skillful in appealing to those, I'm one of the people, I'm not one of these elites, I don't think that I'm better than you, I, I think that I'm, I'm one of you. He's using the spate of foreign policy crises that they're seeing around the world to say, look at what the elites have done. Look at what the establishment has done. Uh, has that got, gotten us anywhere? And that's a very potent political tool. It may be oversimplified, uh, but it's very powerful. People are as anxious now as they have been uh, since 9-11. And if you point to so many areas around the world and say, this is what the establishment has done for the world, this is what they've done for you, um, I think that that's that's powerful, and so that that does seem to signal the the doom of of the elites. Now, depending on what happens in November, I think that will uh, tell us a little bit a bit about job security. But I hope I hope mine's not in question at least. 
No, no, you're you're you are locked in. You are you are secure. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're locked in the car. Yeah, right. Also locked. <laughs> now, having said this, you know you've been talking. David's been talking. I'm looking at Rose's face, and it's it's and she's worried. I mean, she's no, worried. no. I'm I'm happy. There's David, sweat because breaking I believe in the out on her. Sweat is breaking out on her brow because I look at how I introduced her. FP contributor Rosa Brooks. FP's 50-year-old foreign policy magazine. It's founded by Samuel Huntington, Richard Holbrook. It's as elite as it gets. Senior Future of War fellow at the New America I Foundation. I told you I believe in the future. You work at a think tank. Professor at Georgetown <laughs> University. I know, God, the professors are the you first were, to go after the work, revolution. You know, you that always and happens. author of a forthcoming book, Rosa Brooks. You are a card-carrying member of the foreign policy elite. But, but here's you the, are the face of the foreign policy elite, and these guys say you're doomed. I am doomed. I recognize this. I, I, we are on the we collectively are on the verge of extinction. But I, I want to quibble with just one thing that Molly Molly said, which is uh, Molly characterized Trump as saying to his supporters, "Hey, all these people talk like they're better than you. Well, I'm one of you. I'm not better than you." He actually has a a, a different twist on the message, right? He says he says I am better than you because. I got rich, you know, um, I, and that that is the one measurable thing that you can tell that I know what I'm doing because I got so goddamn rich. And look at you, poor saps. You're not rich, are you? But I can show you the way those 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 other elites. What are they offering? You know, what are they peddling their degrees, their expertise, their allusions to Boswell and Johnson? That's not going to fill your fridge or your, you know, the gas tank of your car. But I, Donald Trump, know how to get money. Stick with me. You'll all get money. America will get money. Our enemies will get poorer. We will get richer. Trust me. And I actually think that, you know, in America, which despite ironically and in, in some ways part of what we're seeing in this election on both parties is kind of a rejection of capitalism, as we've discussed, you know, this is still a culture in which we respect people who can get rich. You know, that 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 myth of the smart get rich, that's really how you show you know what you're doing is still very powerful and, and it's working. So... We circle back, as all good shows should do, to our opening question and premise. And whether you believe that Trump is a patsy or Trump is complicit or there is simply an alignment of interests, there is one thing that's absolutely certain if I listen to all of you and particularly Rosa's impassioned summation. And that is it's very clear why Vladimir Putin loves Donald Trump. It is very clear why he would want to support him. Donald Trump solves every problem that Vladimir Putin has. He weakens the United States. He weakens NATO. He makes Putin look good by comparison. Putin's a communist in his heart anyway, despite the fact he may be the richest guy in the world thanks to his sort of capitalist impulses. Uh, he loves the idea of the crassest capitalist of them all coming to power in the United States, gilding the White House gold, having beauty pageants on the South Lawn, and making the country into a laughingstock. If I were Vladimir Putin and I had 360 million Americans to choose from as president, I'd pick Donald Trump too. Um, that's where we're going to wrap this episode up. But there will be future episodes. And in fact, I can tell you that the next one we do will be about Rosa's book. Yay. How everything became war and the military became everything. The first selection of the FPER book club, which we've just made up a second ago. Um, and if you are one of the 11 listeners, 
Go buy Rosa's you book. You can pre-order it on Amazon, and I want to see the, the bestseller rank go up by 11. By 11 by for 11. each of the 11 listeners. Yeah. And if you buy more than one copy um, and email us, um, Rosa will send you an email that you can print out and stick in the front of your book. Hmm. <laughs> it's better than the mug. <laughs> it probably would be more useful to you than a mug. We'll see. We'll see just how much that response gets. Molly, please get out of the car. Go get something cold to drink. Remember, it's the most important thing to do at a convention is to hydrate. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll take that advice. All right. David, thank you. Thank you for making Donald Trump so interesting as his brain. You are making this the most interesting campaign of our lifetimes. <laughs> I'm sure he'll have you snuggling up to him again soon <laughs> for, for another one of these interviews. Rosa, congratulations on the book. I look forward to discussing it next time around. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, and please join us again soon for another episode of The ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.